Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name's Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the Agoje, the West African soldiers also known as the Dahomey Amazons. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay my respects to their elders past and present. They're the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings for this episode. This episode will include discussions of slavery and the European colonization of Africa. It will also include historical and modern racism, sexism, and queerphobia. There'll be discussions of war, including death and serious injury in war, as well as torture and execution, and there'll also be mentions of self-harm and the use of human remains in a ritual context. So if any of that is something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out our other content instead. Briefly speaking, just so you have some context, the Agoje were regiments of female soldiers who served from around the early 1700s until 1894 in the Kingdom of Dahomey in present-day Benin. So, first off, where's Benin, guys? It's on the south of that sticky outfit. Of? Africa. Of Africa. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good job. Yeah, it's in West Africa on the, yeah, south of the sticky outfit. What is that called? I tried to look that up a lot. So, if anyone doesn't understand what we mean, you know, the bulge on the kind of northern <laughs> western side of Africa, it doesn't seem to have a name. <laughs> okay. Okay. But, yeah, because I, I know that people commonly refer to sort of the countries around that area as West Africa yeah. in the context of, like, the slave trade and so forth, because that's a very heavily affected part. But calling it West Africa when there's, like, then a whole other west coast of africa below that seems a little confusing to me so yeah and i think you just have to accept as with the fact that americans call the middle of their country the midwest in africa west africa refers to that kind of northwestern coastal part of africa Uh, i guess to turn the question around the rest of the west coast of africa below that does that have a different name a lot of it is referred to as like central africa okay sure i knew you were doing africa you cheated no i didn't i didn't is the thing i was like i should study up so i'm ready for the geography quiz and i didn't do that and so then when you (laughs) asked about benin i was so excited that i already knew i love that you intended to cheat and then you just didn't (laughs) i was gonna say you've done a lot better job at locating benin than like I feel like we often than Pennsylvania. <laughs> I feel like it's more important to know where Benin is than Pennsylvania. Yeah, like yeah. I know where the USA is. I know is. where the USA is. Like <laughs> we've done enough. Yeah. I'm not gonna learn the administrative divisions of every country. No. No, but you're gonna learn them of Benin. No, you're not really. <laughs> you're gonna learn some parts of Benin. Okay. So Benin is between Togo to the west and Nigeria to the east on the coast of the Gulf of Guinea, which, although we don't have a name for the bit of land sticking out the side of West Africa, that's the bit of water underneath it. Cool. Hopefully you've got a map of Africa in front of you if you can't figure out what I'm talking about. So I want to make a few comments before we get started. First off, I was obviously inspired to do this episode by the recent film The Woman King, which is about the Agoje. But this is not an episode about that movie. I have not seen that movie. From what I've read about it, its storyline is almost entirely fictional and not queer. So it really has no relevance to us. Cool. But that's what inspired me to start researching these people. Secondly, in regards to terminology, the Agoje have generally been referred to by Europeans as the Dahomey Amazons. Agoje is the word in Fongbe, which was the language of Dahomey still is a language used in Benin. And another Fongbei word sometimes used to refer to them is mino, which means our mothers. So you might have come across that or hear that as well. Where did they get to 
Dahomey from? So the folk etymology of Dahomey is that when one of the first kings, maybe the first king of Dahomey, was founding the kingdom, he killed an enemy whose name was Dan. In his the name s- was Dan? His name was Dan. Just like coincidentally. <laughs> yeah. Just- okay, cool. But this isn't Dan as in like Daniel. No. Okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> all right. It's nice to know that we're all inventing the name Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, go on. So he killed an enemy named Dan and he stabbed him in the stomach with his spear and uh-huh. then on that location that was where he founded his kingdom so dan homey means belly of dan oh wow oh i see that's a folk etymology um (laughs) really i was just wondering whether that was a local word or whether Mm. it was a colonial word but Mm. i guess it's a local word it's a local word you have answered my question in much more detail than i expect thanks (laughs) dan Finally, before we get started, I want to mention that the Agoji were assigned female at birth, but there are various and conflicting ways in which they express their gender identity as a group, and we have no sources regarding their gender as individuals. I started off sort of going, should I therefore refer to them always as assigned female at birth rather than women or female? Once I started questioning that, that kind of led me down the path of questioning whether I should ever refer to any historical assigned female at birth person as a woman the closer and closer they became associated to the Agoji. And honestly, that was such a can of worms that sometimes I will just use the word woman or female to refer to them as a group. So what you're sort of saying is that the Agoji just have different conceptions of gender to us entirely, and that if we were to be accurate, we wouldn't apply the word woman. We'll talk about it later on, but what I'm more saying is we can't really know on an individual level, yep. and on a group level, they sometimes describe themselves as women and sometimes don't. But once I started going, well, should I call them women? I kind of went, well, should I call their historical precedents women? Should I call the other assigned female birth people in, you know, a similar situation or living in a similar context women? And then that opened the question, mm. should we ever refer to a historical individual as a woman when they haven't explicitly told us that. And just so we didn't get bogged down in that terminology, I have used the word women and female sometimes in this script, but I want to acknowledge that it may not be accurate. Okay, so kind of simplification. Yeah, Yeah, simplification just so we can have a conversation. All right. So this episode is going to be split into two parts, one looking at the Agoje and their history, and the second looking at them from a queer perspective. So starting off with the origins of the Agoje, It was not unheard of for people assigned female at birth to serve in West African armies outside of Dahomey. It's also recorded, for example, in the neighboring kingdom of Oyo, which is in what is now Nigeria. But Dahomey is unique for the scale on which women fought in the army. One factor that may be significant in this is the gender imbalance in Dahomey. With the development of the transatlantic slave trade, huge numbers of Dahomeyan men were being captured by neighbouring nations and sold into slavery. For much of the 18th and early 19th century, Dahomey also paid a tribute in enslaved men to the Empire of Oyo, to which it was a vassal state. Ongoing wars had also decimated the male population. So by the 19th century, it's estimated there may have been as many as two women to every man in Dahomey. That is a social problem. That is a social problem that you need a way to address. Yeah. (laughs) And this is one of the ways to address it. So with the ongoing need to people their army and the more normalized use of women in the military in West Africa, it made sense for Dahomey to turn to female soldiers. Beninese oral histories collected in the 20th century date women serving in the Dahomeyan army back to the early 1700s and place them in particular at the conquest of the neighboring kingdom of Weida in 1727. One of the next accounts of women in the Dahomeyan army is in 1729. Running short of male soldiers for the reasons I mentioned, Dahomean King Agaja armed a large group of women and placed them at the back of his army. The aim here was to bulk out his numbers and intimidate the army of Weida rather than have the women fight. 
Seeing the sheer size of the Dahomean army, the Whedons turned and fled. Nice. That is the optimal outcome, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a common strategy in this part of the world in war. To just send everybody <laughs> to freak them out. Yeah, rather than to fight to intimidate with numbers, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I imagine sometimes women do fight and then they're like, well, I mean, yeah. I have a resume now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll discuss how they build up their resumes in a moment. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Add the Dahomey Amazons on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> So this story from 1729 shows that women were armed for warfare in 1729, but it also shows that they weren't actually participating in the fighting or a kind of regular trained permanent part of the army, unlike what we see later on. Mm -hmm. Most early accounts of women bearing arms in Dahomey, however, refer to them in the role of bodyguards to the king. So that's how you bulk out your resume before joining the army. You do that before joining the army? Yeah. (laughs) Wild. (laughs) Let me explain. So, to understand why this happens, we're going to talk a little bit about Dahomean palace life. So, the Agoje lived in Dahomey's royal palaces and fell into the category of Ahosi, which is a word normally translated into English as king's wives, but more accurately translated as something like king's dependents. So, many of them would have had no personal relationship with the king and there were thousands of them. So, just to wildly derail this episode, can you tell me anything about the architecture of Dahomean palaces? (laughs) I did read a lot. give me the vibe. So it's kind of like a walled compound with a lot of smaller buildings inside. So within Dahomey more generally, a man would have multiple wives and each wife would live in kind of their own house within a compound that that man oversaw, owned. I guess a man has to have multiple wives in this social context, given that we have two women per man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It must be so. I guess that's true. And so the palaces kind of reflect a much larger scale version of that. Sure, okay. And, like, what are their sort of building materials? Like, what's a house made out of? I've seen pictures of them. I would say it's mud brick, but I only am guessing that from seeing the pictures. Sure. I'm not, like, 100% confident that. There's a lot of information out there if you want to look it up. I did read it, but I can't remember it all. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be going above and beyond. (laughs) So, with the exception of the king himself and some eunuchs, no men were allowed to live in the palace. Ah. So, the thousands of Ahosi lived in what was essentially an all-female city. Some were politicians and diplomats, some did manufacturing, domestic or agricultural work, and others were married to the king, as we would understand, and that they, you know, slept with him and bore his children. This setup seems largely designed to ensure the king was surrounded by loyal followers through avoiding family factionalism within the palace, and also to protect him from political or physical attack by rivals to his power. So women can't become the king. Women cannot become the king. There's one possible example of a woman becoming regent, which we'll discuss a bit later on, but generally no. Is that the woman king about which the movie is maybe was... spuriously about? No. Oh, okay. what? <laughs> so is the woman king of the movie just made up? Again, no. So, okay. All right. You know what? Maybe we shouldn't get into it. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. All right. So within Dahomey, you've got a lot of male political officials, you know, royal family, king, and so forth. But they have this system where each male official is paired with a female equivalent. And there's some debate among scholars about what role these female equivalents played. So some argue, for example, that, you know, the man who looked after food supply outside the palace was paired with the woman who looked after food supply inside the palace or something like that. Oh, okay. But Others suggest that the women had some more power and that they were kind of there to 
keep the men in check. So the female equivalent of a male role would accompany that man to meetings. It's a non-literate society, so the woman would be responsible for memorising and reporting oh, everything oh. that he did, which becomes kind of a spying, monitoring role yeah. as well. Okay. Her job is maybe to go there and point it out if later he tells the king what happened and he's lying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so the king himself also has a woman he's paired with who's called the Pajito, and that is the woman king in the movie. Okay. That's generally translated into English as the queen mother, but she's not actually the biological mother of the king. And they're not like a couple. No, they're not a couple. Like okay. they're not Just romantically they're or sexually co-workers. involved. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're co-workers. co-workers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. And I think that's why like in English they say queen mother rather than queen. Sure, yeah. yeah I figured, but I thought it was worth clarifying. So like, just to be clear, we have this like functionally all-female city where yes. there's a bunch of like female politicians effectively yep. within the city. But there are male politicians that are just in other compounds. Yes. And, and in these other compounds, is it like one man per compound or is it only the king's compound that is mostly just women? So in these other compounds, they will be living kind of the more general setup outside of the palace. So it would be one man with multiple wives within the compound. Okay. And these men, like the male politicians, are allowed into the palace at some stages okay. for like, you know major political meetings and obviously there is politics going on outside of the compound because men are involved in it. So the compound is more the equivalent of like their home rather than like their town, including place of business. Yeah. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. So the Ahosi can leave the palace, can and do leave the palace to, you know, conduct business, do a variety of things, live their lives. When they do leave the palace, nobody outside the palace is allowed to interact with them so they'd have guards or servants who walked in front of and behind them as they walked down the street to like warn everyone they were coming and to like go inside or avert your eyes these women are walking past right now interesting and the king also lives a life quite closed off from the rest of the people so for example nobody except one specific official speaks directly to the king everyone has to go through this one guy the king's never seen in public to eat or drink there's always a cloth held up in front of him when he eats and drinks so that's a very powerful one guy who gets to speak to the king. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. What if that guy was simply a liar? <laughs> yeah. That guy was simply Grimmer Wormtongue. You know. Like. I think the thing is the king is like present in a meeting, oh, okay. but you can't directly oh, address right. the king. No, okay, that okay. makes more sense. The king is not just like in a room somewhere, and some guy is like, "Hmm, I'll go ask the king." Nah, the king says no, and <laughs> the king never finds out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that uh, obviously makes way more sense. I was just going to assume that there was, like, a woman king speaker as well to help him not lie. I don't know exactly. Like, I assume there was some kind of similar role. And I know that, like, so obviously there's a lot of Ahosi, as I said, but there's a specific group called the Posi who are kind of the most senior mm-hmm. ones. And for them, similarly, they had somebody who was the only person who was allowed to speak to them. Okay. Right. So, since only women were allowed close to the king and allowed to spend the night in the palace where the king also lived, it's a small step for them to be the ones trained to protect him. Even that no one else can do that overnight. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, sources throughout the 1700s observed that the king was guarded within his palace exclusively by Ahosi and eunuchs. And from there, I'd say it's another relatively small step, especially given the lack of men in Dahomey, for these women to serve in the army outside the palace. Okay, so Dahomean oral tradition provides another origin story, that the Agoji were created by or in honour of Queen Hungbei, who's that regent I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So she's referred to as queen quite often in English, but from a technical perspective, she's a regent. 
I have a question just before we get to that. You know yes. how you were saying how when the women leave the palace to do their business, yes, they take guards and servants to tell everyone to get out of the way and look away at everything? Yes. How does that interact with them being in the army? So obviously when you're in battle, that's a different situation. Nobody's saying, I'm sorry, these women are on the battlefield. You all have to look away now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. They are just fighting in the army as any soldier would fight in the army. And similarly, for example, there's a lot of European records of seeing them do like military military displays and military parades. So there are contexts where you're allowed to see them. So just being in the army, it's okay to see these women, but if they're like down the shops, you can't. Yeah. There's one reference from a European who was in the capital of Bomi, where he complains about the fact that it's really, really hard to get around in the capital because there's constantly these Ahosi going to, you know, get food and bring it into the palace or do their laundry and that kind of thing. (laughs) And you always have to stop and wait and look away before you can keep going when you encounter them on the street. Yeah. So to get back to Queen Hungbei, she reigned in the early 1700s, according to oral tradition. She was the twin sister of King Akaba, who died suddenly while on campaign in around 1716. With Akaba's chosen heir still a child, Hungbei stepped in as regent, reigning, depending on the account, for three months or three years. Some accounts add that she disguised herself as Akaba to keep morale up, and others say that she led her own troop of female warriors. The Wemenu people, with whom Dahomey was at war at the time, also have oral traditions of facing female soldiers. There is debate among scholars, however, about whether Hungbei existed at all. She doesn't appear in any written records before the 20th century, and she's also not in the royal lineage lists recited by oral historians in Abomey. Would they normally list a regent, though? That's a valid question, and that might be a reason she's not in there. And there's also these lists were controlled by the mm-hmm. king and therefore could be manipulated by the king. And so we have other yeah. examples of like a king staging a coup and then removing his predecessor from yeah. the lists. Yeah. Okay. So these lists aren't like definitive, factual, definitely happen. Yeah. They're biased historical sources. Shocking. And Hungbei did support an unsuccessful claimant to the throne against the man who became king after her. Okay. Well, well, well. So that's a pretty valid reason mm. to remove her from the historical record. But, like, the 20th century is quite late. Yeah. So the thing is, all the Dahomean oral histories were oh, written down in the 20th century. Right, okay. So obviously, while it may have been said before then, yep. we don't have any record that it was being said. Okay. And secondly, this specific period in the early 1700s is quite poorly recorded in European sources. Because until 1727, when Dahomey conquered Weida and gained access to the coast, most Europeans were on the coast and Dahomey was an inland country. And so there right. just wasn't actually much direct interaction between Europeans and Dahomeans. Okay. But all that said, there is minimal evidence that Hungbei existed. Yeah. And it is possible that she was a myth created later on as an origin story for the Agoji. Yeah. What do we know about like Dahomey oral histories? So, within the kind of official royal oral histories, things yeah. like these lists of kings, they are, you know, quite tightly controlled, which mm. obviously means they can be kept more similar over time by having a kind of structured system of memorization, but also means that they are, as I said before, like manipulated by the royal family to suit their yeah. purposes. Yeah. There were other oral histories collected in the 20th century just from the more general 
Dahomey okay. populace, which from what I understand is more like if I just went around like, you know, England and collected oral histories. It's people's family stories or recollections that don't have any specific methods in place to ensure their historical okay. accuracy. So when you say that they recorded Hung Bei's existence in the 20th century, that was something they probably learnt from those general oral histories. Yeah. They just spoke to people about yeah. it, but it's not an official source, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so she's okay. not in those official lists of kings. Yes, but people broadly kind of agree that she's unfortunately the oral histories are pretty much all collected or recorded in french and i couldn't get access to them okay so i can't actually say how widespread this account of hungbei is okay there's obviously at least two accounts of her because one said she was there for three months <laughs> and another for three years that's true and like things like you know the fact that she's dressed as a kaba or the fact that she led a troop of female soldiers I know those don't appear in every account. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there are enough accounts that we can kind of say this is the definitive account. Hungbei served as regent after Akaba died. But these are the extra details that we find in various accounts. All right. I'm, I'm convinced that she probably existed. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so regardless of their origins, Agoje numbers grew throughout the late 1700s and early 1800s. At their height, they probably numbered about 8,000, making up about a third of the Dahomean army. Originally, most Agoji were captives from surrounding nations. Oh. Others were criminals or the relatives of criminals from within Dahomey who were conscripted as punishment, or wives and daughters of various Dahomeans deemed by their families to be badly behaved. So again, it becomes a punishment. So it was not like a respected or desirable position. It was a very respected position, actually, yes. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> weird situation, but all right. Yeah, it's not what you would expect, but it is the case. So I'll also add before I talk about that, that in response to an increasing threat from the Egba people to the east, King Gezo in the first half of the 19th century began to expand and standardize the army, including regular recruitment drives from amongst Dahomeans for the Agoje. So every three years under Gezo and onwards, women in their tweens and early teens were chosen from around the country to serve in the army. Okay. So, in answer to your question, despite these backgrounds of punishment and conscription, Agoje had a high status and opportunities to gain wealth and power through their military service. French naval surgeon Rapin in the 1850s describes them as living sumptuously and passing their time drinking, smoking, and dancing. Good. Success in battle would be rewarded with material gifts as well as political power. Because of this, families seeking influence in the palace might voluntarily offer their daughters to become Agoje, and even the children of current or former kings sometimes took up arms as well. British naval officer Arthur Wilmot describes how the Agoje were, quote, fully aware of the authority which they possess, which is seen in their bold and free manner, as well as by a certain swagger in their walk. Once they had been chosen to become Agoje, according to oral histories, a group of recruits would pledge their loyalty to the king and to each other by mixing each of their blood together with gunpowder and alcohol and drinking it from a human skull. To Whoa! Seal <laughs> <laughs> that's intense. And this is one example that's come up. This kind of performative violence yeah. is common within Dahomey. Okay. If they were just like blood and alcohol, human skull, I would have been like, all right, but somehow adding gunpowder made that more. Yeah, so this is a thing that people used to do, as I learned when researching this episode, mix alcohol and gunpowder. And when I say people, I mean like not just in the homie. I don't know why. Do they react in any way or is it just like greasy alcohol? I think it's just like hardcore. Okay. <laughs> okay. Can you just drink gunpowder? Is that like fine for you? Does it have health benefits? I don't know. <laughs> Superfood? Next Superfood. <laughs> What's gunpowder made of? Salt, Peter. What's salt, Peter? 
Oh, God, I forget. Nitrogen. Yeah. Something. <laughs> something, something, nitrates. I don't know. I can't wait for the transcript of this episode to be taken down because it sounds like a bomb manual. <laughs> <laughs> Right, now it has the word bomb manual and enjoy that. Google SEO. Thanks for making sure nobody ever finds this episode. So moving away from that cocktail, loyalty to one another was a big focus of Agote training. One account tells of how when an Egba woman serving in the Dahomean army was recaptured by the Egba people, she refused to let her parents free her and instead chose to return to continue serving with the Agote. So, after the ceremony, new recruits would then be apprenticed to train with an Agoje regiment. Because they were largely closed off from male observation, Europeans didn't witness much Agoje training. Some scholars, such as UK historian David Ross, have gone so far as to suggest that, to quote, the Fon seem to have had no concept of rigorous battle training, Fon being the ethnic group of the people of Dahomey, and there appears to have been no attempt either to drill or to train in the best use of weapons. This claim is belied by most evidence that we do have from Europeans who witnessed Agoje military displays. I don't know why Ross said this. So in 1851, for example, Frenchman Auguste Boe witnessed a mock attack conducted outside Abomey by Agoje and male soldiers, which he describes as executed with cohesion and vigour. In the early 1860s, British naval officer Arthur Wilmot explicitly asked King Lele if, quote, he ever practiced his people, and in response he was invited to witness a shooting drill of both male soldiers and a goje. He describes the skill of the soldiers as, quote, really astonishing, and similar comments are found in other sources as well. Okay, so what the hell, Ross? Yeah, I don't know what Ross was talking about. There are a couple of quotes which do describe a Goje military skill in a much less flattering light. There's one from 1864 where an English diplomat called Richard Burton refers to them as manoeuvring like a flock of sheep. But from what I've read, when you actually look at those quotes and place them in history, they generally come after a major defeat when they would have been looking at new recruits. Mm, okay. And also, like, I would not put it past a 19th century British man to be sexist. Just that- saying. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that is also true. And it seems like overwhelmingly they are described as very skilled and very well trained. Okay. They are also generally seen as being not as skilled with firearms as European soldiers. But that is probably also reflective of the fact that they had access to worse firearms than European soldiers because they were generally getting older guns that were being sold out of Europe, often after having been used for a while in European wars. And so there wasn't as much benefit to training them to be really good with these guns because the guns just weren't that good. The benefit wasn't that high. Yeah. But throughout their history, the Agoje are repeatedly described as skilled soldiers with a reputation in particular for fearlessness and for never retreating. One oral tradition is that during Dahomey's 1864 attack on the Egba city of Abeokuta, an Agoje broke through the Egba ranks, or by some accounts even managed to scale their walls, before turning her back on the Egba, taking a seat and beginning to smoke a pipe. <laughs> Egba soldiers repeatedly failed to shoot her down until a sniper was called in to do the job. Another account from the same battle tells of an Agoje who had her arm cut off and simply switched her musket to the other hand and kept fighting. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah, these guys are hardcore. Yeah, they're very hardcore. That's their main thing. Many outside observers saw the Agoje as the backbone of the Dahomean army. During the Franco-Dahomean Wars of the 1890s, 
One French soldier said, Anyone inclined to sympathize with the Amazons on account of their sex and look upon the combat between them and our men as unequal may take it from me that their sympathy would be misplaced. These young women were far and away the best men in the Dahomean army, and woman to man were quite a match for any of us. You know, a weird yeah. sexist way to compliment them, but... <laughs> but I, I get what he's saying. Okay. No. You can see what he's trying to say. It's a very 19th century man thing to say, <laughs> but I get where you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> So this quote brings us to the two Franco-Dahomian Wars, which took place in the early 1890s as France attempted to gain control of the country. These wars brought the Agoje to the popular attention of Europeans. In the early 1890s, a dance troupe of 20 so-called Amazons spent two years touring Europe, sponsored by a British businessman. Okay. It's unlikely any of these women were Agoje, and some of them we know were not Dahomean. So it's just a British guy rounded up a bunch of African girls and were like, hey, do you want to be a dance troupe? There's money in it. I think so, yes. Okay. I'm shocked that so some of them were Dahomean. Some of them, I believe, were Dahomean. Okay. Yeah, and I think some of the others were Yoruba, which is kind of a neighboring group. Okay. So they are from West Africa, but they're okay. not a good deal. They're yeah, just yeah. some women. Yeah. As well as turning Dahomean culture into an exotic and inaccurate spectacle, this traveling troupe was also part of a wider trend in France of highlighting what they saw as the barbaric parts of Dahomean culture in order to justify colonization. Yeah, sounds about right. So French art, writing, and this kind of thing focused on the presence of women in the army, ongoing wars, the slave trade, and the public sacrifice of criminals and prisoners of war to Dahomean ancestors. Is As that... if no one in Europe was doing public executions. Come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find the quote, but I know I read it and I wanted to include it, where one of the Dahomean kings was having a conversation with a European about why they continued to do these public sacrifices, and he explicitly kind of compares it to European public executions of criminals. And what did the guy I was talking to think about that? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I think He's like, the... went home, put his hands yeah. and was like, I had to reconsider my life. <laughs> When is this again? Right now we're in the 1890s. Okay. So after the first Franco-Dahomean War ended in a tenuous peace treaty in 1890, the second Franco-Dahomean War broke out in July 1892. The subsequent seven weeks of fighting saw huge casualties amongst the Agoje. By the Battle of Aragon on the 6th of October 1892, just 434 Agoje went into fight and only 17 returned. Oh no. The king's brother, Sagbaju Glele, later told Beninese historian Luke Garcia that this was the moment he realised Dahomey would be crushed. Mm. In mid-November, King Behanzen fled the capital Abomey and the French marched in, installing Behanzen's brother Agoli Agbo as a puppet king before abolishing the monarchy in 1900 and instituting direct French rule of Dahomey, which would only gain full independence in 1960. After the war, the head of the Dahomean peace delegation told French cavalryman Frederick Chalamet that only 50 or 60 Agoje remained. Those that did were forced to find a new place in society, as the French imposed their understanding of the role of women as confined to wives, mothers, and domestic labour. So they put an end to both women in the army and women in roles in politics. That is certainly a big change from swaggering around smoking pipes. It is. Just in terms of, like... Gender roles. Yes. <laughs> According to oral tradition, some Agoje did remain in Abomi, passing themselves off as wives of Agoli Agbo or his ministers in order to infiltrate the new French regime and assassinate French officers. Good for them. Mm. How successful were they at that? There's no French records of like a bunch of their officers being assassinated. <laughs> so I guess not enough that the French were like, this is a major problem. Okay. But, but it may have happened it once. It may have happened. Yeah. In 1978, Beninese historian Amélie Degbello met a very old woman named Nawi, 
who told her she had been an Agoji. Naoi passed away the following year and is often referred to as the last of the Agoji. If she had served as a teen in the 1890s, she would have been over 100 when Degbello met her. I guess that's possible. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Unfortunately, I couldn't get a hold of Tegbele's work where she interviewed Naomi. It was like a master's thesis she did in the 70s in Benin in French. Oh, I see. So it's like <laughs> yeah. a physical book that's somewhere in a university. Yeah, unfortunately. A lot of people cite her, but her work is very hard to get. That's pretty like important work for a master's thesis. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Not to denigrate master's thesis, I'm doing one. But... <laughs> yeah. So that's been your introduction to the Agoji. Now I want to talk about the through the lenses of sexuality and gender. As we've discussed, Ahosi, including the Agoji, had very little opportunity to interact with men. In fact, pretty much all our sources agree that at least during their years of active service, Agoji were required to swear an oath of celibacy. This seems mostly designed to avoid pregnancy and childbirth, which would obviously impede their ability to march and fight. Having children was also seen as a risk of dividing their loyalty between their own family and the king and their fellow Agoji. Although herbal contraceptives and abortive patients were used, some Agoje nonetheless fell pregnant or were found out in other ways, and they and their lovers were punished. Agoje and men found to be their lovers may be tortured, executed, sold into slavery, or sent on dangerous military missions. So obviously there's nothing inherently queer about this enforced separation from men. However, outside of the military, marriage and childbirth was the expected path in life for many fond women, especially lower class women, and it's clear that within the army, many Agoje embraced the opportunity to remain unmarried. In the 1970s, when Emily Degbello was tracing the lives of surviving Agoje, a descendant of the Dahomean royal lineage, Asangang Aranonglele, explained to her that many former Agoje had remained unmarried after the defeat by the French, seeing marriage as a type of servitude. In his 1864 book, A Mission to Glele, King of Dahomey, British diplomat Richard Burton describes how many Agoje captured at Abeokuta chose to die rather than marry their captors. He goes on to add, quote, as a rule, these fighting celibataires prefer the morosa voluptas and the peculiarities of the tenth muse. What an insane thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. But also I feel like when people are like, oh, she would rather die than marry her captor, you can't interpret that as much. So I'm mostly telling you that to give you the context for that quote. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm not being like they would rather die than marry their captors. They're gay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But even like that quote then, it's like, so they got captured and they were going to be forced into marriage and they were like, I want anything but that. So to be clear, his quote is not saying this is what they said. He's saying these women would rather die than marry their captors. In fact, most of these women were lesbians. But is that where he's drawing that conclusion from? So he has another point towards that. Elsewhere, he comments that there were cores of prostitutes kept for the use of the Amazon soldieresses. And clearly he's talking about these being women in this context. Uh, okay. So Burton definitely believes that most Agoje are having sex with women. Yeah, but who is Richard Burton again? He is a diplomat who was in Dahomey in the 1860s. Well, well, well. A British diplomat. <laughs> that we should just be like, oh, cool, they're lesbians. Thanks, Richard. Obviously. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Richard's bringing some of his own conceptions about, you know, women he views as masculine being lesbians. Absolutely, yeah. Like, just, just thought I'd float the possibility. And yeah. also, like, women who don't marry men being like, why would a woman possibly not marry a man? Mm, the only explanation is yeah, she's a lesbian. I've got your number. I was going to say Dick, and then I was like, I'm not allowed to say that. That's his nickname. <laughs> That's just his name. I, mean, I yeah. don't know if he went by Dick. So, as you've kind of alluded to, Burton doesn't really provide 
great amount of sources for these claims, and it's not necessarily realistic to think that he had any access to information about the sex lives of Agotu. Yeah, that is a good question. Like, why would he know that? Yeah. <laughs> so we only really hear direct information about Agoje's sex lives when they fell pregnant and were punished for it. Okay, so we know that some of them had sex with men, I guess. Some of them definitely had sex with men. That's a fact. <laughs> but since lesbian relationships couldn't be exposed by pregnancy, this did lead me to the question of if they'd been discovered, would they have been punished? Or can we reasonably assume that lesbian relationships could have just gone on among the Agoje and no one really would have talked about them because they were quite closed off from the rest of society and there was no problem with these lesbian relationships? I mean, yeah, I guess if, as you've said, the big problems with them having sex with men was the potential for pregnancy and then having children, Mm. like dividing their loyalty, then yeah, I guess maybe it stands to reason that They could just have sex with each other. Yeah. So to try and kind of like figure out if that was the case, I tried to look up more information about fond attitudes to female-female relationships. Pretty much the only information I found was from the American anthropologist Melville Herkowitz, writing in the 1930s, who commented that in Dahomey, quote, homosexuality is found among women to a greater extent than among men. When forced into marriage, women of this type often exhibit extreme frigidity. So that's not really a very useful or informative quote for us. <laughs> it really only tells us that, as we already knew, there were lesbians in Dahomey, as there are everywhere, and also that there was some expectation that they would marry men, which doesn't apply to our context, the Agoje, since they can't marry men. But as well as sexuality, Herkovitz also wrote about on marriage. And he notes two types of marriage which could involve two women. One of these is called Bosso Dono Bossi, which translates as giving the goat to the buck. And we'll explain why it means that in a second. Okay. So in this marriage, a well-off financially independent woman would marry another woman who would in turn marry a man and bear his children. The children would legally belong to the first woman, that well-off financially independent woman I mentioned, and this enabled her to maintain her independence from a man while also continuing her lineage. Good. Reasonable. Yeah. So the buck in the name comes from the fond saying that when a goat becomes big, one does not ask which buck caused her to conceive. And so it basically refers to the minimal role played by the man who would only visit but never live with his wife. While in contrast, the two women would live together with the financially independent woman, to quote Herkowitz, regarded as a husband and called husband by her wife. Okay. So is it normal for a husband to not live with but only visit or that's a specific thing to this That's a specific thing here, yeah. So a wife would normally move into her husband's compound, whereas in this case they're living in the first wife's compound. Okay. And the husband comes to sleep with the second wife. He's really just like providing a sperm donor function here. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's basically his role. Another kind of similar type of marriage was called avanusi, which translates as woman with cloth. In this arrangement, a princess, which refers in Dahomey to any female descendant of a current or past king rather than just the daughter of the current king. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a princess would give one of her female attendants in marriage to a man for the nominal bride price of a piece of cloth. As in Bosso Dono Bossi, the man would father children with the princess's attendant, but the princess would fulfill the role of husband, gaining legal control of the children. I guess this makes sense if you're a lesbian princess and you're like, I need heirs. Yeah, and that's the general idea in both these contexts. You're a woman who doesn't want to marry a man, but who does want to have children. And this is the way you can do that. Yeah. 
As Herkowitz says, talking about Bosso Dono Bossi marriage, this does not imply a homosexual relationship, although it is not to be doubted that occasionally homosexual women who have inherited wealth or have prospered economically establish compounds of their own and utilize their relationship to the women they marry to satisfy themselves. All right. Which, you know, I would agree with. This isn't necessarily gay, but there's definitely a great opportunity for these women to be gay. That's such a clinical way to say have gay sex, though. <laughs> utilize their relationships with the women that they marry to satisfy themselves. Hey, baby. <laughs> Utilize our relationship to satisfy our desires. <laughs> I put this on my resume. <laughs> I know, same, same, same. <laughs> but yeah, like that seems like you said, like not inherently gay, but not not gay. That it was sometimes gay seems pretty like case closed. Yeah, yeah. Like I have no reason to believe this wasn't sometimes gay. Yeah. So as far as I know, to get back to Agoje, we don't have evidence of Agoje specifically participating in these types of marriage. But the existence of these types of marriage does suggest an acceptance of a variety of relationships between women, including ones in which women played roles that would have been more generally played by men. Mm-hmm. Given that we've established that having a family is seen as something that's going to be a problem, mm-hmm. I think we can sort of see it's obvious why Agoje didn't participate in these types of marriages. Yeah. And again, I don't <laughs> think that necessarily rules anything out. Yeah, no, that's true. But I think the fact that there's no condemnation of, like, lesbianism in these marriages does kind of suggest to me a lack of condemnation of lesbianism yeah. in the wider society. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, where we have this parallel thing where, like, the agoge obviously don't have to be gay, but they could be gay. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in our other context of this doesn't have to be gay, but could be gay, it is a little gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think even though, yeah, obviously agoge aren't going to participate in this particular structure, it does yeah. quite a parallel for how some agoge being in relationships with each other would would be fine. Would be fine. Yeah. 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 So while we don't have specific evidence of like relationships between Agoje, it does seem to me that Agoje would have provided a space for same gender attracted women and also aromantic and asexual women to avoid the expectation of marrying men and have an alternative path in life. Yeah. Especially when we remember that those two examples that I provided to you of like the possibility of female female marriage were really only available to financially independent women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agoje vows of celibacy also give us an opportunity to gain some insight into how people at the time talked about women's sexuality. Europeans who encounter the Agoje generally draw an association between their celibacy and their violence on the battlefield. Okay, sure. Burton writes that their celibacy doubtless increased their ferocity in the fight and adds that horrors are their succedaneum for love. Uh, shut up, Richard. <laughs> Somebody please tell me what succedaneum means. It means substitute. I both looked that up and wrote down how to pronounce it. <laughs> yes, it means okay. substitute. I don't know why he said that. Can word, you just say it? the sentence again with just substitute in there then? Horrors are their substitute for love. Okay. Yeah. Shut up, Richard. <laughs> um, I'm sure that you have a vast insight into female psychology, Richard, but I'm I don't sure need your does. expertise here. British entomologist Alfred Skirchley, who was in Dahomey in the 1870s, adds to this that they have a bitter spirit of animosity against all men born of having lived without performing the functions for which their sex was intended. Okay, or well maybe you're just annoying Alfred. <laughs> Shut up, Alfred. So he's an entomologist. <laughs> so he came to study bugs and was like, nah, I can weigh in on and just whatever, basically. Yeah. Are there some cool bugs in? I have no idea. Really. There are cool okay. beetles everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just thought maybe Alice would give us an example. <laughs> no, I don't know anything about the cool beetles. Oh, uh, well, that sucks. To quote Skirtle a little 
bit more. I'm sorry. It's not you who should apologize. <laughs> That's true. In case his view wasn't clear enough, he also comments that whenever a woman becomes unsexed, which for him seems pretty explicitly linked to their supposed to the intended purpose of their sex, as he says, she invariably exhibits a superlativeness of evil. Okay, well, I mean, first of all, that's an insane thing to say. <laughs> but second of all, I guess, if we stop, like, dunking on Alfred for a second, it is kind of interesting the ways in which people link sexuality to someone's, like, actual physical sex. Yeah. I think it's very interesting the way that, like, at the same time, kind of, you've got 19th century anthropologists, whoever, who kind of hold these views that women are the, like, less sexual sex compared mm, to men mm. but also that women if they don't have sex with men will just go insane and start killing people so i think these guys i can't remember if it's burton or Skirtley, but one of these writers around this time could be someone else as well definitely kind of believes that women rather than being the less sexual sex women are the more extreme sex uh-huh women have more extreme uncontrolled emotions that kind of thing okay. and so if they don't direct those emotions into the healthy path relationships with men those emotions will turn into bloody violence <laughs> Okay. <laughs> There's kind of fear in this. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, when is this guy? So Scourgely's in the 1870s, Burton's in the 1860s. Yeah, I mean, I feel like 19th century men are afraid of women is, like, not a particularly hot take. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's obviously, like, horrifically sexist on this, like, deeply dehumanizing level. Yeah. But it is also something that, like, someone make a, like, you know, B grade horror film out of this, right? <laughs> yeah, like, please. <laughs> like, not about the Dahomey, that's obviously not going to be a good idea, but, like, just this kind of idea that, like, oh, she doesn't have a man, so she is a ravening beast. It's just like, I don't know. It's like, we've said this before with things where it's like, obviously messed up on some level, kind of cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> to get back to the point that you made about, like, sexuality affecting people's, like, physical sex. Yeah. Burton explicitly describes the women in Dahomey as having a masculine physique and the men as being smooth, full-breasted, round-limbed and effeminate-looking. I don't know which way round he sees the cause and effect of, like, women performing what he considers inappropriate roles for women and gender being kind of inverted yeah. in Dahomey, but he definitely believes that both these things, you know, are coexisting and playing off each other. Mm. If yeah. getting rid of your boobs was just a matter of willpower, like, that would change things a lot for lots of people. When you say willpower, you mean not sleeping with men and joining the army. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would certainly change the army. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. So, disappointingly, some of these attitudes do kind of continue to appear in more recent scholarship. Oh, of course they do. Sigh. In 1998, Elpern, author of one of the first modern works on the Agoge, writes that the Agoge's vows of celibacy, quote, had to be a shattering experience, and that although male soldiers would call them mino, meaning our mothers, quote, that was obviously no substitute for real motherhood. Shut right. up! <laughs> <laughs> All of these men are so bad. I guess, like, yeah, obviously you're correct. But I guess, like, for some of them, that's probably true. You know, yeah. Some of them were, like, risking their lives in order to, like, hook up with some dude. Yeah, like, yeah. some of these people were conscripted and did risk their yeah. lives to have relationships with men. Like, definitely this vow of celibacy was shattering for some of them. And some of them, no doubt, would have wanted to be mothers and had that opportunity taken away from them. Yeah. yeah. That, that's obviously not, like, a important <laughs> part of being a woman or anything like that. Like, Yeah, that's not yeah. all of them. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously I don't doubt that there were some people who did not want to be in this army. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Um, yeah. But, like, biological essentialism. 
is bad. Alpern also briefly raises the idea that some of Goethe may have been lesbians, but then dismisses it since, quote, homosexuality of either sex is almost unrecorded in the European literature on pre-colonial West Africa. I'm right. screaming. <laughs> Thank you for stating that rather than doing it for <laughs> the sake of the audio. Yeah, I mean, if you say we don't have any evidence of a thing and therefore your evidence cannot be evidence of that thing, you've created a perpetual state of no evidence Yeah, yeah that yeah. we will never escape from. And also he absolutely does not interrogate at all, like, why we don't have that evidence. Like, who were the Europeans writing stuff down? Why did European men not mention that, you know, maybe women were having sex with women in Dahomey? Did they just not pay very much attention to what women were doing with women? Like, mm. that's what men generally do throughout history. Yeah, yeah, like, did they not know? Did they not care? Did they just not have access to that information? All of these yeah. things are likely. Did yeah. they think it was inappropriate to talk about? The best case scenario here is that instead they're doing their job and describing beetles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> their area of expertise. <laughs> so, having talked a bit about sexuality, now let's talk a bit about gender. There are many examples of the Agoje explicitly renouncing womanhood and identifying themselves as men. Alrighty. The words okay. of one song recorded by British naval captain Frederick Forbes, who was in Dahomey in 1849 and 1850, say, As the blacksmith takes an iron bar and by fire changes its fashion, so we have changed our nature. We are no longer women, we are men. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice analogy. Yeah, it is. Forbes commented that the Agoje could not have publicly claimed to be men unless it was, quote, fundamentally true. That is, unless it was accepted by the rest of their society, which he obviously believes it was. Okay. I like the way that Forbes has been like, well, no one would say they were a man unless they were a man in their society. Well, I think specifically what he's saying is they couldn't have gotten away with, like, yeah. publicly saying this and performing these songs publicly if people didn't believe it was the case. So at least you wouldn't say you were a man unless you were a man, and more, you couldn't publicly say you were a man if nobody thought that was true. By some accounts, Agoje also dressed in a way that made them indistinguishable from male soldiers. The standardization of their uniforms under King Gezo in the first half of the 19th century included a shift towards tunics and blouses and away from bared chests traditional in Dahomey. This shift occurred across both male soldiers and Agoje, probably due to European or Islamic influence. But Degbello also argues that it was designed to, quote, hide the Agoje's feminine nature. And she also references Agoje binding their breasts, though, as I said, I haven't been able to access Degbello's own work to find out more about that. It does seem that Agoje were sometimes mistaken for men. Egba oral histories of the Battle of Abeokuta describe how the Egba discovered their opponents were women, either when one was captured or when the tunic on a dead Agoje slipped and revealed her breasts. This is described by the Egba as a turning point in the battle, where their soldiers were so ashamed to be beaten by women that they routed the Dahomean army. On the flip side, however, King Glele is quoted by Burton in the 1860s as saying on multiple occasions that a woman is still a woman, suggesting to him, at least, and perhaps other Dahomeans, these claims of masculinity were more metaphorical and part of a general tradition of songs in which the Agoje talked up their strength and military prowess to intimidate their enemies rather than a factual claim about their gender. Some Agoje songs did also explicitly describe themselves as women. One, for example, includes the line, Lionesses are more fearsome than lions because she has her cubs to defend. That's interesting given they're explicitly not allowed to have cubs to defend. <laughs> yeah. I think, I can't remember exactly how this song continues, but I think their cubs are either like the king or the country oh, sure, or yeah. something like that. They're okay. metaphorical Obviously, cubs, yeah. 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 <laughs> I cannot understand things metaphorically. 
So rather than renouncing womanhood, this song subverts the idea of masculinity being linked to military skill and instead links their womanhood directly to their military prowess. Other songs also specifically contrasted their strength as female warriors with the perceived weakness of their male counterparts, something encouraged by the king and military commanders who organised competitions of male regiments against Agogia. To take a brief sojourn into European attitudes, it won't surprise you to learn that most Europeans saw Agogia as women failing to perform their gender appropriately, and saw this as representing the failure of Dahomey as a civilization. So 19th century Swiss writer J.J. Bachhofen explicitly writes that Amazonism is a lower stage of existence, depicting humanity on a journey of, quote, progress from the maternal to the paternal conception of man. Ugh. Again, I am screaming. Oh, no. Yes. Any kind of conception of, like, people existing on the spectrum of, like, less developed yeah. and more developed is just so... Yeah, it's real, like, it 19th gets... century race science yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, it gets yeah. racialized so fast, and it's extremely disgusting. Okay, like, cool, I don't want to interact with this. I mean, it's, it's I guess, a novelty to have this sort of nonsense from a Swiss man instead. We haven't had one of those before. <laughs> you know, whatever, like... <laughs> That's... Yes, okay. <laughs> the anonymous journal of a French legionnaire in 1892 in Dahomey tells of how several Agoje captured by the French, once they realised they would be fed and cared for so long as they remained peaceful, began to fuss over their appearance and flirt with French officers who in turn admired and felt protective of them. Wow, it's almost like they used the tools they had available to help them survive. <laughs> Maybe it is. But from the French perspective, this is kind of used to show that, you know, an exposure to European values and taking them out of that military setting allows them to behave more appropriately. Yeah, for reveals their, their true gender. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks. Anonymous French legionnaire. <laughs> yeah. Shut up that guy too. <laughs> We've been providing very... Uh... <laughs> It's not our fault that everyone here has been, like, bad. <laughs> I know, I know. We're going to analyse the badness. Yeah. Do these people really deserve analysis, though? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, sometimes you're just like, yep, that is some racism. Yeah. Yeah, that's some racism. That's like, some sexism. I always feel like kind of engaging with some of these quotes seriously just gives them more respect than they deserve. And I know that, like, if we're trying to do some kind of, like, educated analysis mm. of this, it is helpful to still debunk those sorts of things but also like shut up shut up <laughs> and i also think that there are things that are simply not worth debunking in that way where it's just obvious like our audience doesn't need to be told that a framework for civilization that goes from most primitive to least primitive and with also, europeans at the top is like and with women's rights decreasing as you move along that yeah trajectory. Like, we can all see that that's bad yes not good anthropology. Zero out of ten. So, what can we make of all of this in terms of Agoje gender? Did the Agoje see themselves as fundamentally becoming men at some point in their initiation and training? Or did they see themselves as an example of women's superiority over men? The short answer to this is obviously that we can't possibly know. The contradictions inherent in the song lyrics I've mentioned no doubt represent contradictions that existed at the time in how Agoje and the people of Dahomey understood their gender, and there also obviously would have been variation among individuals as well. I mean, are these even necessarily contradictions mm. from uh, like internal perspective, like from their perspective? Um, or are we just saying that's contradictory because it doesn't match up with how we would conceptualise how gender works? That's fair, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's not necessarily a contradiction for them to be like, look, we have made ourselves 
masculine. As you see, this is a thing that women are capable of. Look at lionesses. Yeah. You know? Yes, that's true. It's more of, I guess, a challenge of what their society's conceptions of women and masculinity are than it necessarily is them saying two contradictory things about themselves. Yeah. Which isn't to say that, like, I'm sure there is a variety of experiences that Mm. are held Mm -hmm. by the members of this group. Like, whenever you have a large enough group, then there is a variety of experience, right? Yeah, I don't think there are necessarily inherent contradictions in all the, like, songs you've told us Mm -hmm. and things like Mm -hmm. that. But there are trans men in this group, like, you know. Yeah, I think, like, as we said with other lesbians among the goji, or other asexual and aromantic women among the goji, like, other trans men among the goji, absolutely. But, like, that's not necessarily what being a goje is. Yeah, and yeah. probably, like, a goje provides a space for people who are not comfortable with, you know, being understood as a woman in the, you know, more general sense outside of the army. Yeah. Like, a goje would provide a space for them to express their gender in a way that suited them better. Yeah. But there would have also been, you know, women cis in women there, in the goje. Who were just in the army, yeah. Yeah. And as we said before, like, we have to remember that a lot of these people were also conscripted. And, like, even if that's a space that provides an opportunity to explore gender, a lot of them didn't choose that space. Yeah. So I wanted to end this episode with a little comment about the legacy of the Agoge in the 20th century in terms of their interpretations by queer people. The relationships between the Agoge have resonated with modern queer people, especially with black Americans looking for a way to construct their identity outside of reference to white European culture. The lesbian writer and activist Audrey Lord, who visited Dahomey in 1975, is a notable example. And if you want to know more about Audrey Lord than that one sentence summary, we do have an entire episode on her. From memory, it's quite long. It's very involved. Um, I kind of almost want to do a second episode on Audrey Lord where I talk more about her academic work. Sure, I'd do it. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so Audrey wrote a lot about the importance of black women and specifically black lesbians constructing community and supporting each other. In her 1978 book of essays, Sister Outsider, she discusses the ahistoricism of seeing black lesbians as, quote, a threat to black nationhood or unblack. And she says, women bonded women have always been part of the power of black communities from our unmarried aunts to the Amazons of Dahomey. While I haven't seen it specifically in reference to the Agoje, this debate is ongoing amongst queer communities throughout much of Africa today who are forced to argue against the idea that queerness is an un-African European import despite historical evidence to the contrary. So while I may not have been able to bring you today the story of specific queer individuals in Dahomey or provide you, you know, concrete examples of queerness amongst the Agoje, I hope that I have at least been able to give an example of a space that existed for those people within African history. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else it is you find your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate our podcast out of five stars to help more people find our content. And if you find us on Apple Podcasts, we also appreciate it if you leave us a review. And if you do leave us a review, we might read it out on this podcast, as Eli is about to do now. Yeah, heavy emphasis on the my thing. We've <laughs> done this for like a season and a half. <laughs> oh, we're doing it now. We're doing it now. Actually, I have quite a backlog of them, so I guess we could work through them. This review is from Mohas, who is from the United States. It is a five-star review and it is titled Fantastic. Thank you. They write, I've been listening for nearly five years now and this is still my very favorite podcast. I love the discussion format in which content is presented. It's very engaging and fun to listen to. Thank you. Thank you. Five years. Five years. We've been making this for five years. That's wild.
Thank you very much for that review. If you want to support our podcast financially, you can join our Patreon where you'll get a chance to vote on episode topics, receive our monthly newsletter, and listen to bonus episodes. And I'd like to give a shout out now to two of our new patrons, The Wonder Lauren House and Ryan Ullman. Thank you both. If you would like to buy some Queer as Fact merch, we are on Redbubble as Queer as Fact. And if you want to get more queer history content in between episodes, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. We are Queer as Fact on all those platforms. And if you want to contact us directly, you can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. And all of that information is available on our website, which is queerasfact.com. We'll be back on the 1st of January. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.